Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Now read in Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 28, and uh, continuing on to the end of the chapter. This is what the word of the Lord says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, eats with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. Lord, may you bless the reading of your word and may you open our hearts and the eyes of our mind to to understand what you are saying to us, Lord. Amen. People long to know the future, don't they? If we're honest within ourselves, we desire greatly to figure out what is ahead. We want to know what's next. Is it good? Is it bad? What turn should I take at this fork in the road? And where will this choice lead me? To know the future is extremely attractive. Everyone and their dog has an opinion about what tomorrow will bring, hey? And the disciples were no exception. They had their questions about the future. And so we've been spending a couple of weeks. We had a break last week and we looked at Ephesians. But we spent a couple of weeks in Mark chapter 13 as Jesus answers the disciples' questions about the future. They wanted to know, and Matthew records for us in Matthew 24 verse 3, about the temple's destruction. And they wanted to know about your coming, Jesus' coming. And they wanted to know about the end of the age. So Jesus answers the disciples. And he finishes in the text that we just read in Mark chapter 13, verses 28 to 37, with a definitive answer for us about his return. 
We're going to address the text in three parts this morning. What you should know, what you should know, what you should not presume to know, okay, what you should not presume to know, and what you must do. All right? What you should know, what you should not presume to know, and what you must do. First, what you should know, and you can look in verses 28 to 31 and follow along. Jesus there gives the disciples an example, a lesson from the fig tree, verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. There's a parable, a lesson here. The growth of leaves on the fig tree signaled the beginning of summer in Palestine. And so Jesus points them to, to look at the tree to learn a lesson. When the fig tree budded and began to bloom, it gave proof that the first fruits of the harvest were not far off. And in the same way, verse 29, Jesus says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very, very gates. In the same way that you can learn about the approach of summer by watching the fig tree beginning to bud and the leaves appear, Jesus says, when you see these things, you will be able to know when he, that he is near at the very gates, right on the doorstep. This, of course, raises the question, what are these things that Jesus is talking about that they're to look for that are like the leaves budding on, on the fig tree? Well, these things refers us back to the question the disciples asked. They asked, when will these things be? Mark 13, verse 4. And Jesus' answer regarding these things may be found in Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 23. We see in, in verse 8, these are, that is the same Greek word, these are the beginning of birth pains. These things. Then, after Jesus has described a, a sign that would herald the coming destruction of the temple, verses 14 and following, Jesus concludes in verse 23, this is what he says, I have told you all these things. I have told you all these things. He says, I've laid it all out for you. What to expect. So these things refers to the events surrounding the temple's destruction in 70 AD, certainly. But also to what verse 8 talks about, those birth pains, the, the famines and earthquakes and troubles and wars that will continue until the end of the age and will culminate in the return of Christ. 
when these things have taken place, and they all did happen in the first century, that earthquakes aren't new today, wars aren't new today, all these things did happen. Jesus says, then you will know that he is near. Then you will know that he is at the doors. He's already there. He's on the doorstep. Now the word there is, is near, contains the subject in the Greek. And it doesn't specify the gender. It doesn't say who or what is near. And so some of your versions, some of your translations may uh, translate it is near. Okay? Rather than he is near. But I want to give you three reasons why I think that it is most natural to take this as referring to Christ and his return. That this is speaking of Christ and his coming. Three reasons, okay? One is that Christ's return bookends this statement. If you look back, previous couple of verses, Jesus has just finished describing the glorious coming of the Son of Man. Okay? So we have that in mind as Jesus says this. Secondly, immediately after, Jesus will go on to speak of that day when the Son of Man will return. Okay? So that's the first reason. The context here is indicating to us this is talking about Christ and His return. Secondly, the Scriptures often speak of the day of the Lord being near, although it is not yet. Okay? So we could go, well, how could that be true? Because look at where we are now and how many years have passed on. But the Scripture often speaks of the day of the Lord being near, though it is not yet. We have the prophets that speak of the day of the Lord coming and speak of His coming and His substitutionary death and atonement, and yet in the same breath, speaking of His coming in judgment. No gap in between. That day of the Lord is nonetheless near. So for example, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, the Lord is near. This is a, another way of saying his coming is at hand. He is right on the doorstep, as it were. The third reason is this. We are explicitly taught in the scriptures that God's concept of nearness is not the same as ours. So this kind of continues the thought of the last. Not only does the Bible say the day of the Lord is near. But it also tells us that his way of thinking and his concept of time is different than ours. The Apostle Paul writes to the believers around the Roman Empire and he said to them in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you. He wants them to know God isn't being slow to keep His promises. He will return. He will judge the world. And He will make all things new. There were people then and there are people now who would say, well, God is not obviously acting. He cannot be present in this world. Things are not going on the timeline that we would think they should. But here's why. Here's why the Apostle Peter says the Lord is not slow. Notice the previous verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. With the Lord, one day is as or like, so it's not equating them, but it is similar to, it is like a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The reason that God is not slow to keep His promise is that the span of our lives is so short. To us, a hundred years is an awful long time to live. But with God, that's but a hand's breath. It's a vapor. It's like the blooming of a summer flower that's beautiful for its time, but is gone in the span of a season. God is eternal. He will act at just the right time to accomplish His purposes. And He holds back yet. Desiring that none should perish, the Apostle Peter tells us, because He's having mercy upon sinners. Mercy upon those who yet do not know Him. Second scripture that teaches this same idea. Many years before Peter, the prophet Habakkuk had questions for God about what God was telling him was going to happen. A destruction was going to come upon the Jewish people by the Babylonians. And God answered him and he said in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What is God saying here? God is saying if the fulfillment of this prophecy, this vision, seems slow, here's what you need to know. It hastens. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is in time, on time, every time. And so, when He says His coming is near, Though it may seem it has been a long time to us, we need to grasp hold of the fact that God is saying, I am at hand. So getting back to Mark 13,
Jesus is saying, after you've seen the temple's destruction and, and desolation, and when you experience the birth pains and troubles of this world, you should know, you should recognize that the return of Christ is near. You should remember he's right on the doorstep. What else can be known from what Jesus tells us? He says also this generation will not pass away. Verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now remember, these things is referring to what Jesus has already told. Okay? Some have said that this clearly didn't all happen in the disciples' generation. And so they suggest, well, we have to figure out a way to explain this. This generation will not pass away. They won't die before seeing this happen. And so there's been some different suggestions people have. They say, well, this is talking about the Jewish people. So it's, a, it's not a, a generation in time, it's a people group, the Jews. Or others say, well, we should translate it that generation. Never mind that there's another word that would make more sense, but they mean by that it, that it would be referring to the generation alive whenever these things happen in the future. And that is, a, that is a one interpretation Another interpretation of this phrase, this generation. But to be uh, frank with you, these suggestions miss the point and really make little sense of the context. Um, I don't say that to say there's not yet future uh, tribulation or anything like that. But I say this because First of all, Jesus is referring to the generation alive at the time he spoke. This is what makes sense of the grammar and the way in which Jesus spoke and the way in which the apostles recorded it. R.T. France, when he is uh, talking about this passage, he says, the whole construction of the sentence, as well as the disciples' question, when? Okay, they're, they're getting at a temporal, when, what time, the timing of this. The whole construction of the sentence, as well as the disciples' question, when, in verse 4, demands the regular temporal sense. People alive, as Jesus is speaking, will still be there to see the fulfillment of his words. Okay? Jesus meant what he said. The disciples themselves would live to see these things take place. Secondly, I say this because not only does that make the most clear sense of what he says, but also because the generation alive at the time of Jesus really did see all these things happen. The temple was desolated and destroyed in 70 A.D. All of the birth pains, the Wars and the famines and the earthquakes that we um, experience today as a result of the fall, they all happened in some form or another within that generation. Uh, 
I'm not saying that that ended in that generation, but they saw all of these things. Jesus is simply saying that the disciples' generation will with certainty experience all of these things and that following these events, he himself will be at the doors. He could come. He could come today. He could come at any moment. Therefore, we cannot presume to think and act as though Christ cannot return today. And we shouldn't hope in this world it will pass away, Jesus says. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, verse 31, will not pass away. They will not be unfulfilled. So our confidence must be in the words of Christ. We must rely on Him. The apostles needed to in their day. We also must rely upon the words of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand to get, uh, stand forever. The prophet Isaiah spoke in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The words of Jesus, our God, will forever be true, will forever accomplish their purpose. His words are the words that we can count on throughout all time. So we should know then that His coming is on the very doorstep. He has said so. Secondly, we shouldn't presume to know the precise timing of His return. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. With this verse, Jesus takes his disciples from the knowable to the unknown. The phrase that day or that hour refers to the timing of his coming. That day or the day is Scripture's shorthand for the day of judgment. When Christ will come to raise the dead, and he will gather his people to himself, and he will consign the wicked to eternal punishment. We are told no one knows the timing of that day. That includes you and me and Harold Camping too, if you know who that is. And a whole list of other folks that have not listened to this scripture that says no one knows, not even the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. And a lot of people have tried, and they've made fools of themselves predicting Christ's return. Wikipedia can tell you the upcoming predictions up to like, I don't know, 2040 or something like that. 
people are making predictions still today. But some things are not for us to know. And the timing of Christ's return is one of those things. Not only is it not profitable to speculate, it's actually arrogance. It's the sin of presumption to think we can predict what Christ has said is hidden from us. To be frank with you, anyone who claims to know the timing of Jesus' return, anyone who sets dates or says in X amount of years Christ will return, is really not worth listening to. Now, they might have have some good things to say. They might have said a lot of good things. And I'm not saying that the Lord cannot redeem a person's ministry who says uh, something poorly or or, uh, flippantly or retracts what they say, but it is not a good thing to be uh, thinking that we can figure out the day or even the decade that Christ will return when Jesus himself in his humanity did not know the time of his return. So who are we to think we can do better? Who are we to think that that's for us to know? We instead are to watch, Jesus says. We're to long for Christ's appearing and labor faithfully under whatever pressures we might experience season after season until he returns. We should know that his coming is on the very doorstep, but we should not presume to know the precise timing of his return. How then should we live? We must, in the words of Jesus, be on guard, verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake. These two words emphasize being watchful, being alert, being prepared. We are to be prepared, Jesus tells us, precisely because, verse 33, you do not know when the time will come. Since the timing of his return is hidden, we ought to always be ready. Jesus illustrates this in verses 34 sorry, to 37 with the example of a homeowner who goes off on a journey. And, and as he leaves, he assigns his slaves with different responsibilities. And this is what Jesus says, verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper's job, Jesus says, is to stay awake and to be ready for his master. This is the command of the master. The word stay awake is also translated stay alert and keep watch. It has the idea of remaining ready, being alert, and therefore prepared for the master's arrival. Jesus continues in verse 
35 and then 36. Therefore, this is his conclusion. This is his reason for telling us this story. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Like the doorkeeper, the disciple of Jesus is to stay awake and be prepared for whenever the master of the house returns, it doesn't matter what time of the night or day it is. No shifts, no time off. To be ready at all times. And just in case you or I begin to think, but surely this does not apply to me. Surely this is talking to the apostles and it refers to the, those folks. But Jesus says in, in verse 37, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So this was the message of the apostles. This is what Paul tells us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he tells the believers, stay awake. This is a message, Christ's word for his church. Stay awake. Given that he has told us that he is at the doors, given that we do not know the timing of his return, we must be ready. We must stay awake. Now, staying awake doesn't mean watching for signs to see if we can figure out when he will return. Doesn't mean spending our days staring at the sky, wondering, is this the moment that Jesus will return? Now, I hope you can look up in the morning and say, I would love for Jesus to return and I'm ready. We're talking about more than looking with our physical eyes. We're talking about more than being physically awake. None of you can stay up 24-7 for very long. How many days can you do it? We're talking about a spiritual reality. A spiritual awakeness. To be being alert and ready for Christ to return. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke's account. The, the uh, apostles record a few different statements. And Luke says this in Luke 21 verse 34. Jesus said, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Jesus is saying the same thing in Mark's account. Stay awake lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. But here in this verse, in Luke 21, verse 34, notice that the watchfulness that Jesus is calling his disciples to, 
is a spiritual alertness that watches ourselves, not the skies. That is not weighed down or drunk with the pleasures and cares of this life, but is instead concerned with the reality of Christ's coming and driven by a holy affection for Christ's return. To be awake is connected here to being, being sober-minded. The Apostle Paul makes that same connection in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To be sober-minded is to have our minds and affections on, on Christ. To be filled with the Spirit rather than the things of this world. Not lulled to sleep by the world's passions, but to have our minds awakened by the Spirit of God to another world, to live for another kingdom. This is why we proclaim that people must be born again. For there is no other way than by the Spirit of God that a person be found awake when the Lord comes in all His glory. That He would reveal Himself to us, open our eyes to see Him, to recognize he is near and to live in light of that reality. But how then do we measure spiritual awakeness? How can we measure and, and weigh and watch ourselves? And how can we watch and help one another to be ready for the master's return? I would suggest to you the first test of whether someone is awake is whether someone longs for Christ to return. Would you rather have Jesus? Would you rather be with him now than have all that is in this world? Would you rather have all these things in this world that you are working towards that you've invested in or have Christ. Paul said that the crown of righteousness will be given to all who have loved his appearing. That's Christ's appearing. Do you love Christ so much that you desire his appearing more than the delights of this life? Do you think often of his coming? Think on Christ, brothers and sisters, for the light of his glory is the only antidote that can wake you from slumber, from being lulled to sleep by all the things that can distract us from what is truly important. Daily. We need such a view of Christ's power and glory that we're unsatisfied with anything less than Him. We will stay awake. We will seek after Him. Desire Him. So we should look at our affections. And we should look at our, our heart attitude towards the things of this world and the things of God, the things of His eternal kingdom. 
what we treasure. All right? The second test of spiritual awakeness is demonstrated in our actions. Because it's certainly one thing to say, I love the Lord's appearing, but then to pursue a passionate love affair with this world. And your life will reflect one way of living or another, one kingdom or another. And so it is good for us to ask the question, do my actions reflect a commitment to Christ, to advancing his kingdom and longing to see him soon? To ask, what would change in my life? What would change in your life if you sought every day to be ready for Christ's return and to value him and his coming? more than anything else. When I worked at camp, we used to have to sing this song before breakfast. All the campers stood in a line, and I was in charge of a group of, you know, uh, 9 to 11-year-old boys. And... uh, The song was, I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic. You had to do actions, right? You had to go from your toes up to your shoulders. And you had to sing the song. And, you know, I could be pretty enthusiastic the first couple of days. But I'll tell you, by the end of the week, my actions showed, okay, you could probably tell I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm sort of mouthing the words and bending down. (laughs) But not much more than that. I wasn't as enthusiastic anyways. I tried to be, but you may find life like that. You may begin the journey with feelings of life. You you find yourself alert to the newness of life that's found in Christ. You're satisfied in him. You long for him uh, only to grow tired. As time goes on, Christ hasn't appeared yet. And you have these distractions. You can get drunk even with the world. Distracted, caught in vanity fair, stuck in despondency. Struggling along, wandering off the road to Christ. In those moments, remember that he is right on the doorstep. He is at hand. Don't presume to know when he's going to come. But don't presume you've got all the time in the world either. Watch yourself so that you will be ready. Stay awake. You see, when Jesus returns or whether he calls you home to him before that time, there will be no time for last minute panicked preparations for his return. There will be no time to proclaim the gospel to your loved ones. No time to trade in the toys and trophies of today for the joys of eternity. You will be as you are in that moment. So you ought to be prepared now. 
You must watch your soul now, for you will either be found seeking Christ and his kingdom or be destroyed with this world. And brothers and sisters, what a joyful thing to seek Christ, to know him, and to be found in him, spotless and blameless at his coming. That is our hope through the blood of Jesus Christ. So think, Christian. Christ is at the doors. Are you ready for your master's return?